Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Darling, we've been so busy lately. Yes, we have. And I worry that I haven't been, like, setting aside enough time for you, for us, to be a good partner. This is what we do together. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I just mean I, I could be more romantic. This is your segue to something? Are we going to talk about I know you a hate segues. Couple some something about romance, but lovey-dovey stuff <laughs> about a couple who divorced because they couldn't stand each other because they didn't make time for each other. What are we talking about? Well, I, I just thought I would emulate uh, one of uh, your personal romantic heroes, the the suave debonair, handsome hero of, of You've Got Mail. Oh, yeah. Brinkley. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to become a golden retriever. No, no. the, the uh, Tom Hanks? No, not him either. The weirdo columnist who's the, the uh, expert <laughs> on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Oh... Frank, what's his name? Yeah. Who has this obsession with the typewriter? Typewriter. <laughs> and loves to hear himself speak. Mm hmm. Yeah. We are nothing in common. Uh, <laughs> so that's. Yeah, you don't like typewriters. Yeah. <laughs> that much that I know of. But yes, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, they, they were, I guess you could call them lovey dovey. They were together till the end, united. Yeah. They were a, a married couple living in uh, the 1940s, like so many others. Uh, yeah, that's why populations still exist. Julius ran a machine shop with his brother-in-law after serving uh, in the U.S. Army during the war. Uh-huh. Uh, Ethel stayed at home and tended their two sons. Mm-hmm. But they're best known as the only For Americans... mentioned in multiple movies. Lots of movies. Lots of movies. And they, they earned that spot by being the only Americans executed for espionage during the Cold War. Yeah, I guess that tops it. <laughs> so both were born in New York City, Ethel in 1915 and Julius in 1918. They both attended Seward Park High School, though at different times. They, they might have overlapped a little bit, but they did not meet in high school. Uh-huh. Uh, Ethel wanted to be a singer and an actor, but instead she went to work uh, in the office of a shipping company as a secretary. Yeah. She got involved in, in labor disputes, the labor movement, which led her to join the Young Communist League in the early 30s. Mm -hmm. Julius studied electrical engineering at City College of New York after considering and deciding against becoming a rabbi. Oh. The, the way history could have gone. Yeah. Uh, he also joined the Young Communist League and became a leader in the local chapter. That's where the two of them met uh, in 1936, and they were married in 1939. So, 1939 America, things were about to change. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the war, Julius joined the U.S. Uh, Army Signal Corps and served at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. This is just like an hour and a half drive from Manhattan. Okay. Traffic allowing, sure. But yeah. <laughs> the, the Signal Corps, their job in the Army is they, they were in charge. The signal stuff. Basically, they were in charge of managing communications. Oh, okay. Yeah. So less like flag waving and thinking like flag code. Sure, sure. And I like mean, they, they airport were um, wavy sticks. That's what they're called, the wavy sticks. <laughs> even called i'd go with flashlights uh <laughs> no because they're like they're like flash lanterns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my favorite two members <laughs> of the justice league yeah uh the, the signal corps were undergoing a, a major change because of changes in communication technology uh like developing radar Oh. Pretty big deal. Inventing portable FM radios. Oh. Backpack radios that, that people could have out uh, on the front in the field. They also invented the proximity fuse, among other projects. Mm. Uh, a way to tell a bomb, don't blow up in 10 minutes, blow up when you're 10 feet from the thing. Ah, yeah. A, a proximity fuse. Yeah, that makes sense. Julius served as an engineer inspector 
during his army years. In the middle of those years, in 1942, on Labor Day, he was introduced to uh, Semyon Semyonov in a park. That's a cool name. Simon, son of Simon. Yeah. It's a family name. Yeah. Yeah. Semyonov was officially an employee of the Amtorg Trading Corporation, the USSR's only importer of American goods. Mm-hmm. It was a company set up to buy all American stuff going to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also in charge of uh, managing the Lend-Lease program the U.S. had with the Soviet Union during the war. Now, Semyonov was actually working for the NKVD, the, the Soviet secret police. Oh. The secret police that would later be uh, dissolved and replaced or, or more uh, accurately absorbed by the KGB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Semyonov was in New York to, to build intelligence networks inside the U.S. And Rosenberg was part of it from then on. Yeah. <laughs> they, they made sure that uh, he, he was ideologically loyal to the Soviet cause, uh, hadn't drifted away too far from his young communist days, uh, gave him a little uh, tradecraft training and said, hey, if you got anything interesting... We'll set up some channels for you to get it to us. And if you have any friends, that would be great. (laughs) So Rosenberg began supplying his handlers with documents and recruiting informants. Uh, He was a believer in the communist cause. And during the war, we were allies. Uh, Many sympathizers made the point that both nations were fighting the Axis together. Uh, And so by sharing uh, these things that the U.S. military said shouldn't be, they were helping the war effort even more than their superiors were. Yeah. In his later trial, uh, Julius Rosenberg said, if we had a common enemy, we should get together commonly. It's a perfectly logical standpoint. Yeah. So he provided many, many classified reports, thousands of pages from Emerson Radio, uh, who was a military contractor at the time. And he gave a uh, fully working proximity fuse to Anatoly Yatskov. Mm-hmm. Yatskov was uh, his second handler after Semyonov had been transferred back to Moscow. In 1945, the army discovered he had been a member of the Communist Party, and he was immediately fired, cutting off his access to any secrets and research. Now, Background checks get you. They sure do. They sure do. Whether you've been to college or not. Apparently, I haven't. (laughs) That's what I found out. (laughs) Not that I even didn't graduate. Apparently, I never went, (laughs) according to a very, very wrong background check company. I should have just showed them my loan. Be like, look. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Look at all this money I owe (laughs) the government. I think anybody who, who looks at the case from any angle will we'll say uh, even the most, yes, he should have burned uh, a hawkish take would agree that Julius Rosenberg's greatest success was not as a spy himself, but as a recruiter of spies. His recruits gave more information than he ever did. Mm-hmm. One, Martin Sobel, another electrical engineer, may be the exception there. There's no evidence of him providing any important material. Okay. But I mentioned him now because he's going to be important later. Okay. Uh, Joel Barr and Alfred Sarant provided over 9,000 pages describing over 100 weapon systems. Wow. Uh, they were never arrested by the time they, their cover was blown, by the time they were found out. They were already working in the USSR on military research. Sarant mm-hmm. was, for a while, in charge of an entire town dedicated to, like, uh, uh, microprocessors. Oh. He was friends with Khrushchev. William Pearl, another Rosenberg recruit, provided thousands of documents himself, including the complete designs of the P-80 shooting star, America's first jet fighter. Oh, that's a cool name. <laughs> the shooting star. Yeah, yeah. There, there were some remarkable coincidences between uh, shooting star designs and some aspects of the Soviet uh, MiG, their first jet fighter shortly oh. after. Uh, Russell McNutt helped design the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, which is where the U.S. government refined uranium. Is that in Illinois? 
It is not. It is in Tennessee. Oh, because Oak Ridge is a very Illinois name. <laughs> and yes, the, the first sustained nuclear pile was in uh, Illinois, in the greater Chicago area. I think you, Chicago? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Oak Ridge. Yeah, that's totally a Chicago suburb name. <laughs> but it is in Tennessee. <laughs> and McNutt, who started us down this road, gave secrets about the refinement of weapons-grade uranium. Uh, Ethel's brother, uh, Julius's brother-in-law, David Greenglass, was Greenglass. Par- yes, that's- Ethel's maiden name was Greenglass. Her brother's name is Greenglass. That's a cool name, too. <laughs> That's like a supervillain name, I feel like. Yeah. Like, oh, let me introduce you to Mr. Greenglass. And then you find out he's like got a secret lair with a cat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's if the bad guy from Unbreakable sold vegetables. So anyways. So anyways, Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. Yeah, evil villain. Cat. Was part of the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. Oh. Now there is some tasty, tasty intel right there. Yes, there it is. David and Ruth Greenglass were not hard to recruit. Uh, David wrote to his wife, quote, My darling, I most certainly will be glad to be part of the community project that Julius and his friends have in mind. Oh, he was very good at code. Yeah. (laughs) community service project we're going to pick up pop cans uh david would pass classified material that he could get a hold of to the nkvd through a a few different channels uh sometimes it was julius uh and often it was to uh this courier named harry gold uh gold moved a lot of things for a lot of different spy rings Mm -hmm. all to the soviets Mm mm-hmm Now, Ruth's apartment was used to develop photography, especially like, okay, sneak a picture of a document, take the film home, nobody thinks the document's missing, ha ha ha, develop that at my wife's apartment. Uh Uh-huh. That sort of thing. Julius Rosenberg and his handler Yatskov had been recruiting Ruth before they even approached David. So, after the war, it's 1949. And the USSR successfully tests their first nuclear bomb, uh, ahead of American estimates of when they would have developed the technology independently. Mm. Therefore, so, so goes the belief, logically, there must be spies. Yes. So we have to find the spies. Yes. Greenglass was not the only Los Alamos spy. He was the only one he knew of. He was not in contact oh. with any others, but he was oh. not the only one. Uh, theoretical physicist Klaus Fuchs confessed to espionage in 1950 after he was found out by British intelligence. His confession pointed to his courier, Harry Gold. Oh. So when the Americans cornered Harry Gold and uh, put the pressure on him to name names, uh, he led the FBI to Greenglass. By now, Greenglass had also left military work. He left the, the Manhattan Project in 46. Okay. And he and Julius had opened a business together, that machine shop I mentioned in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Fuchs was discovered by British intelligence, the NKVD moved to protect their sources. Now, the Rosenberg and Greenglass families refused to move because very, very recently, Ruth had been seriously burned in a kitchen accident while pregnant. So the Rosenbergs weren't going to leave their sister-in-law in in, in this state. Yeah. David Greenglass had had incurred second-degree burns himself trying to, like, beat out the fire on her dress. It was, it's bad. It's not good. When Gold was arrested, Julius got David $5,000 to escape to Mexico to protect himself. Instead, he and Ruth uh, ran away to the Catskills and used the money to pay for the best lawyer they could get. In exchange for a reduced sentence, David Greenglass pled guilty and testified against his sister and her husband. In his first interview... David said he passed his information to Julius on a street corner. Quote, 
I said before and say it again, honestly, this is a fact. I never spoke to my sister about this at all. Again, his sister being Ethel Rosenberg. Uh-huh. In his second interview before they went to the grand jury, he said the exchange was in Julius's home and Ethel typed up the notes in front of him. Oh, someone's changed their story. Ruth Greenglass, in the second interview, co- uh, corroborated, quote, Julius then took the info into the bathroom and read it, and when he came out, he called Ethel and told her she had to type this information immediately. Ethel then sat down at the typewriter, which she placed on a bridge table in the living room, and proceeded to type the information that David had given to Julius. Huh. This new testimony was given in exchange for dropping all charges against Ruth. Oh, okay. The full transcripts of these later interviews were never produced. Oh, that's mysterious. Before the grand jury, before the official indictment was passed down, the Rosenbergs pled the fifth and refused to answer any questions at all. Mm-hmm. Now, the prosecution strategy was to put pressure on the Rosenbergs to get a confession. They, they put pressure on Fuchs, who flipped gold, who flipped green glass, who flipped Rosenberg. The dominoes are going to fall and they're going to catch all the spies as long as everybody sings. Uh-huh. Ethel was only charged in order to increase the pressure on Julius. You, you name some names, you tell your story in a confession, we'll keep your wife out of prison, your kids will still have a parent. Mm-hmm. Alan H. Belmont, head of the FBI's Domestic Intelligence Division, wrote to J. Edgar Hoover, quote, "...inasmuch as it appears that Rosenberg will not be cooperative, and the indications are definite that he possesses the in- identity of a number of other individuals who have been engaged in Soviet espionage, New York should consider every possible means to bring pressure on Rosenberg to make him talk, including a careful study of the involvement of Ethel Rosenberg in order that charges can be placed against her if possible. Hoover relayed that suggestion to U.S. Attorney General Howard McGrath. Mm -hmm. The Rosenbergs' two young children were eventually placed in the Jewish children's home in the Bronx after they had been passed around to different family members who did not want them. And Ethel cried herself to sleep, missing them. It's sad. It's very sad. (laughs) Martin Sobel, the guy who I mentioned earlier, who was implicated in all this and didn't really share much of of historic importance. Yes. Was kidnapped on vacation in Mexico. Oh. Beaten and handed over to the FBI at the border and put on trial along with the Rosenbergs. Uh, The case against Sobel- Who kidnapped him? Some friendly Mexican people who uh, were, were working on a tip from the FBI. Okay. Yeah. The case against Sobel was even weaker than the one against Ethel, and he was added to the trial just to suggest this large, dangerous network. Uh-huh. If, if you're going to bring a trial against Julius Rosenberg as a ringleader, you need to show that there's a ring. Uh-huh. Not, not just a friendly brother-in-law, I guess. <laughs> who's being very friendly with the feds. Yep. Yeah. So the trial proper began on March 6, 1951. Judge Irving Kaufman presiding, prosecuted by U.S. Attorney Irving Saypol, uh, assisted by a young Roy Cohn, and the defense represented by Emanuel Block. Roy Cohn uh, questioned David Greenglass on the stand himself, David testified that he had only joined the Youth Communist League because of his sister going on and on about it. You know, she was older, she was she was influential. Uh, I I only got involved because of Ethel. Uh, He told the story of uh, his recruitment by Julius and about Ethel's involvement in Julius's espionage, essentially repeating the story that he gave the grand jury the second time. Uh Yeah. And no one's questioning, hey, that first story you had, what about that one? What what about that one? Ruth took the stand and corroborated that testimony and uh, talked about the special table that Julius showed her in his apartment for photographing documents. There's a special table. A special table we only use for that. Right, with, with this compartment that a light fits in 
and and it makes the pictures turn out uh, especially well. Sort of a, a light box slash table that they kept in their living room for spy business. Yeah, because you you want to keep that in the wide open. Hide in plain sight. Ha ha ha. Julius pled the fifth whenever he was directly asked about his membership in the Communist Party or doing espionage. I just want to imagine an attorney being like, did you do the espionage? The espionage. <laughs> How much espionage did you do, sir? Sir, please describe the espionage. Yes. Uh, one thing he did admit to is buying the Daily Worker newspaper and, and reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he claimed the console table was bought... bought For his D&D games. Uh, he, he said he got it from Macy's for $21. The light so you can make sure you see what your dice rolls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The table itself was never entered into evidence, and when it was examined after the trial, it was found to not have any special light box features that Ruth described. It's just a freaking table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the The prosecuting attorney also did this whole gotcha thing about how, well, at the time you alleged there was no table on offer for $21 for Macy's. They were like $80, which was a fabrication. And they later did find a sale flyer that supported the $21 tail of the mahogany table. On a $21 mahogany table. Right. <laughs> Uh, when Ethel was called, uh, she pled the fifth like her husband. She admitted to owning a typewriter. A lot of people did. And having used it uh, many times over her lifetime. That's what you usually do when you own a typewriter. And work as a secretary for a shipping company uh, before you had kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you tend to do a lot of typewriter business. Now, there was no physical evidence entered in the case, only oral testimony. Uh, there were no FBI agents or investigators called by the prosecution in order to prevent the defense from asking them things like, why is there no physical evidence present? Yeah. Or, okay, so you took this sworn statement from David Greenglass. What about this other sworn statement from David Greenglass? Yeah. They, they did not put anyone on the stand that could be asked those questions. In his summation, Judge Kaufman blamed the Rosenbergs for uh, the, the Soviet Union having nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and therefore communist aggression uh, after the war and therefore every death in the Korean War uh, to have come and that would come as it was still ongoing at the time. Ah. Before the jury deliberated, the judge blamed them for the deaths of millions. Goodness. The jury found Julius Ethel and Morton Sobel guilty. Nobody was even talking about Morton Sobel. No. Honestly. There, there was one witness who's like, yeah, he was definitely part of it. Julius tried to recruit me and I said no. And he's like, well, we've got your friend Morton. And I said, still no. That's basically the extent of yeah. Sobel's involvement in this trial. Uh, which got him uh, sentenced to 30 years. Uh, the Rosenberg sentenced to death. Uh-huh. And David Greenglass, for his uh, cooperation and, and pleading guilty early on, was sentenced to 15 years and would serve nine of those. Uh-huh. Roy Cohn claimed credit for convincing the judge to apply the death penalty. Uh, the FBI and the Justice Department both recommended prison sentences instead, and Cohn made sure those recommendations were not read in court. Oh. And entered into the trial record. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cohn later, like in his memoirs and such as, as an older man, said he was responsible for Sapol uh, being chosen as the prosecutor and uh, responsible for Judge Kaufman hearing it. All of those are ethical breaches. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, You're not allowed to do that. You are, you are not allowed to speak with the judge outside of court to, to pressure him to deliver a certain sentence. You certainly are not allowed to pick the judge for your case. No. So with that, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll talk about what happened after sentencing. Death. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, but there's some other stuff too. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello. Now, because the U.S. and the USSR were not at war, the Rosenbergs could not be tried for treason. Ah. Them, them's the rules. They were actually tried under the 1917 Espionage Act, oh. passed to suppress the World War I anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Espionage Act outlawed passing secrets to enemies, but these secrets were passed to an ally. Yeah. This was the basis of uh, uh, one of the uh, appeal attempts. Uh-huh. Also, that they should have been tried under the Nuclear Secrets Act rather than the Espionage Act. That was another uh, uh, appeal attempt. Ah. Now, there had been cases of spies sending military secrets to the Nazis during the war. You know, the enemy that we were fighting. Uh Uh-huh. None of those people were sentenced to death. What what the hell? Those people, you know, probably should have been. For consistency's sake, if nothing yes. else. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover opposed the sentence uh, because he feared executing a housewife and orphaning two young boys would cause a backlash against the FBI. It, it's a bad look. Yeah. Some called it a, a tactical error. That it'd be better to let them stew in prison until they break and, and do uh, sing like canaries instead of sending their secrets to the grave with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Greenglass wrote President Eisenhower to make that argument. Yeah. Uh, he also added on a more personal note, quote, If these two die, I shall live the rest of my life with a very dark shadow on my conscience. May God in his mercy change that awful sentence. You shouldn't have thrown them under the bus. That was one of 15,000 letters for clemency Eisenhower received in his first week as president. Oh, God. This was something that uh, was waiting for him when he came in. Uh, Reaction to the case was divided. Within the U.S., nearly every paper supported it. You take out the explicitly, like, communist newspapers, and it's safe to say every paper supported the death penalty. Uh Uh-huh. Internationally, it was taken as an outrage, evidence of how reactionary the U.S. was becoming, and a clear case of Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. Some called it the United States' Dreyfus Affair. Mm. Uh, Notable figures who did speak out against the decision include Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, quote, By killing the Rosenbergs, you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice. Your country is sick with fear. You are afraid of the shadow of your own bomb. Very deep. Yeah, you're, you're not executing these people because of their criminal act. You're executing them in order to symbolically stop the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jean Cocteau, welcome back to the show, made a statement <laughs> against... Uh, their, their sentence, Albert Einstein, who uh, is more responsible for the Manhattan Project than any other single person, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, said that their, their sharing of nuclear secrets from the Manhattan Project does not deserve death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire communist and communist-friendly uh, uh, community within, you know, artists and intellectuals, of course, Big, big time against this decision. So, say, Frida Kahlo and her husband, what's his name? Welcome back to the show, you two. <laughs> uh, Bertolt Brecht, Pablo Picasso, uh, wrote an impassioned uh, column for a, a communist newspaper. The hours count. The minutes count. Do not let this crime against humanity take place. Yeah, Picasso wrote sometimes, too. It wasn't just all Amazing. pictures. Yeah. I, I was I was trying to imagine what that would look like as a picture. <laughs> so we've got a letter writing campaign, attempted appeals. Uh, there was a longshoreman strike in solidarity, uh, a phone call from Pope Pius Twelfth, and all this public outcry, mainly from overseas, but also the American left. Mm-hmm. 
it still existed in 1950. A bit, a little bit. None of this changed President Eisenhower's mind. None of it moved him to commute the sentence in any way. He described a, a, a part of his reasoning in a private letter to his son. It goes against the grain to avoid interfering in the case where a woman is to receive capital punishment. Over against this, however, must be placed one or two facts that have greater significance. The first of these is that in this instance, it is the woman who is the strong, recalcitrant character. The man is the weak one. She has obviously been the leader in everything they did in the spiring. The second thing is that if there would be any commuting uh, of the woman's sentence without the man's, then from here on, the Soviets would simply recruit their spies from among women. Now that is a wild view of the case. Yeah. The only evidence of her involvement is oral testimony. That she typed up that she typed that, that was the smoking gun that she may have retyped David Greenglass's handwritten notes because he had chicken scratch. Yeah. Yes. But uh, by the time it had been in the papers so long, by the time it had been th- this flashpoint uh, of, you know, the, the 1950s Red Scare, she was this scheming mastermind. Poor old Julius was doing a lot of the legwork, but in order to, to please his uh, communist crusader of a wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because she pled the fifth really hard and people didn't like that, I guess. Judge Kaufman, for his part, believed the international reaction against his decision was evidence of a communist plot. Oh, of course. Of course. There's a plot in the whole world. Why else would all these people from all around the world be calling me an upstanding uh, federal judge in New York? All of these awful things. Because maybe you are awful. Reading like his uh, a list of his notable cases is like some weird whiplash of, ooh, oh. Ooh. Uh. Okay. He, there is some back and forth in the in the case history of Judge Kavanaugh. Julius and Ethel remained on death row for over two years. Uh, near the date of their execution, they were visited by the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, this next quote is from the statement they issued following that meeting. Yesterday, we were offered a deal by the Attorney General of the United States. We were told that if we cooperated with the government, our lives would be spared. By asking us to repudiate the truth of our innocence, the government admits its own doubts concerning our guilt. We will not help to purify the foul record of a fraudulent conviction in a barbaric sentence. We solemnly declare now and forevermore that we will not be coerced, even under pain of death, to bear false witness and to yield up to tyranny our rights as free Americans. Our respect for truth, conscience, and human dignity is not for sale. Justice is not some bauble to be sold to the highest bidder. If we are executed, it will be the murder of innocent people and the shame will be upon the government of the United States. And that execution did happen. Uh, They were executed in the electric chair of Sing Sing Prison, because by this point, there were no electric chairs in federal prisons. Yeah. Uh, in the early evening of June 19th, 1953. Mm-hmm. In one last effort to, to prevent the execution, their lawyer argued that executing them on the Sabbath would be disrespectful. Rather than postponing a few days, Judge Kaufman agreed, but moved it up before sundown. Oh, God. Technically not the Sabbath. That's insane. So that's why they were executed in the early evening rather than the traditional 11 p.m. for Sing Sing. Mm-hmm. It's nice that they have a traditional time. Yeah, yeah. Julius was executed first in a single application of current. After his body was removed, Ethel was prepared and, and strapped in and executed with five applications. Oh, God. After the first three charges, she, she was uh, found to be breathing when they started uh, unhooking her. Oh, my God. Witnesses claimed they saw smoke rising from her head. Um, yeah, probably. Neither offered last words to the observers, and the New York Times said both had, quote, a composure that astounded the witnesses. 
500 mourners attended their funeral, with 10,000 standing outside the cemetery. That's a lot. The facts of their espionage, as I have been presenting them, are still up for debate, especially in the fine details, and especially regarding Ethel's involvement. Mm-hmm. What is supporting someone's effort compared to just listening to your husband talk about what's got him stressed out? Yeah. What is, you know, handling uh, uh, foreign goods and what is, you know, budgeting with wherever Julius is getting these $500 checks? Uh-huh. It's, it's very iffy. It's very gray. The orphaned brothers were adopted and took the, the name Mirapol. Uh, they spent their lives campaigning to overturn the case and attempting to prove all charges false. Uh, Morton Sobel maintained he was innocent nearly his entire life. He confessed in 2008 that he did indeed pass information along to the USSR. Oh. In that confession, he said that the nuclear secrets at the center of David Greenglass's testimony weren't really important at all and were only used to corroborate what other nuclear spies had already provided. Ah. The Greenglass family took an assumed name. Yeah. David recanted his testimony and said he lied under oath to protect Ruth. Uh, quote, I frankly think my wife did the typing, but I don't remember. Mm. My wife is more important to me than my sister or my mother or my father, okay? And she was the mother of my children. He was put in an yeah. impossible situation. Yes. But imagine Thanksgiving at that house. Oh, God. Your sister! She helped raise you! Goodness. In that same interview, he said he wouldn't do anything differently if he knew what was going to happen. Are you sure? The, his children! <laughs> his own family! I his know, wife. but I don't know. I feel like it'd be like... I'd be like, I try to figure out something that would work better for everyone. You have to imagine. You have to imagine that he assumed yes. they do the same and keep passing that yes. buck. Yes, I I get it. I do get it. <laughs> but And and I mean not not to get into this guy's head, but I wonder if like by that point, decades later when he's giving these answers, he was sure to himself that they had the option. It yeah. was their decision, essentially, yeah. to go to the chair. Mm-hmm. Not not his. It was theirs. It's a lot of uh, having arguments with yourself and having to live with it. Roy Cohn, as we're going through the notable names, uh, made a name for himself in getting the communist spies to fry. Uh, he got an appointment from Senator Joe McCarthy as the chief counsel to the Government Committee on Operations of the Senate, and was instrumental in McCarthy's witch hunts through the 50s. Mm-hmm. The Venona Project was a counterintelligence program from the Army Signal Corps. Welcome back, Army Signal Corps. Uh, to decode thousands of Soviet messages and ran through 1980. In 1995, some of these messages were released by the government, which confirmed Julius was recruited as an asset passed along technical information, and recruited the sources that we've mentioned, mm-hmm. among a few others. It also showed that the nuclear secrets that came through him were relatively unimportant. Mm-hmm. Fuchs, though, that that guy, if anybody, was responsible for uh, uh, feeding information that accelerated the Soviet bomb. Uh-huh. Him, not, not the Rosenbergs. Yeah. It could also be that American scientists uh, underestimated uh, the abilities of Soviet scientists. And the big limiting factor was not their technical know-how, but their ability to procure suitable uranium. There you go. (laughs) The the Venona documents do mention Ethel as present, but in a very limited role. They, They don't mention her doing much. Just like, yeah, Source Antenna has this wife who also has friends. Yeah. Antenna was Julius's code name, which is a pretty cool code name. That is name. a pretty good one. Uh, I like that she was just and wife. I think she had a code name. I didn't write it down. I should have. Uh, Harry Gold, his was Goose. Goose. His code name Goose. Nice. 
they called Washington, D.C. Carthage. That's such a good code name. That's really good. Yakovlev also confirmed the existence of the network in his later life in the mid 90s, uh, but said in 1992 that the FBI only got about half of uh, the, the people he was handling, and some of his undisclosed sources were still alive. Oh. In the face of these developments, the uh, Rosenberg slash Mirapol brothers accepted their father was a Soviet spy, but they continued to argue that his trial was unfair, his sentence undeserved, and their mother innocent. Mm -hmm. All of which are very reasonable stances. Mm -hmm. Their mother's complete and total spotless innocence may be the toughest. Yeah. But it's not impossible, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Quite unlikely. But not impossible. Yeah. One of the brothers, Robert, runs a nonprofit to support the children of targeted activists and children who are targeted activists themselves. Oh. Campaigns for the exoneration of Ethel Rosenberg continue. Her 100th birthday was declared Ethel Rosenberg Day of Justice in the Borough of Manhattan. That's a very long title. Yes. Yeah. I, I do like that in the Borough of Manhattan was part of the name of the day. Not just a fact because it was declared by the borough of Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the other borough might want to have it a different day. Just to be clear. Just to be clear. In 2016, the brothers started a petition campaign to get President Obama and Attorney General Loretta Lynch to formally exonerate their mother. It was not successful. Yeah. The current administration would be far far less open to hearing this so they're oh, not yeah. they're not even gonna try no no definitely on the opposite side of the roy Cohn question now this case remains in people's minds today as a watershed of cold war hysteria i i think you could clearly say there is the 50s red scare before the rosenbergs and after the rosenbergs yeah uh, and so you see this when they pop up in the first line of uh, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath and how they, they pop up in Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. Mm -hmm. The trial was novelized twice in the 70s and Cindy Lumet uh, filmed one of those books. Yeah. Ethel haunts Roy Cohn in one of the subplots of Tony Kushner's play Angels in America. Yeah. Notably played by Meryl Streep in the HBO film uh, miniseries. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, so, darling, what have you learned? I learned a lot about who's always being referenced in movies. <laughs> they pop up a lot. They do. And, like, <laughs> I knew who they were, mm -hmm. but I did not know all that. Mm -hmm. You might think that the U.S. was executing Soviet spies all through the 50s and 60s. The way things are talked about, yeah, you no, think so. But ju no. Just the once. Just them. Or twice, depending on one night or, or two people. But just the once. Yeah. Yeah. No no Nazi spies. We caught them. We convicted them. Didn't fry them. Yeah. I'm, that, that's, a, that's a strange one to uh, deal with. Mm-hmm. I honestly did not know how much, like, basically how screwed over they were. Yeah, yeah. Even, even though, like, things point to, you know, guilt of some sort. Like, they were fucked. <laughs> what, what, Everyone's what? like, we are taking them down and we are going to figure out how. It doesn't matter if they deserve it or not. Mm -hmm. If this is actually even true or not. The, we're making an example out of them. A, a quote that is often applied to uh, Julius Rosenberg is that he was a guilty man who was framed. Yeah. Yes, he committed a crime. Did it deserve what he got? Mm, no, probably not. <laughs> probably no. not. I mean, especially when everybody else around him is getting 15 years, 20 years, serving seven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For for providing much more actionable uh, uh, intelligence. Yeah. It's such a strange case to think of what if things had gone differently? What if... The outrage against uh, their sentencing had caught on more domestically. Yeah. And what if uh, Eisenhower said, okay, fine, 50 to life? 
the what if that all would have happened, how things would have been handled afterwards. Right, with right. With the rest of Trials and Blacklisting and everything mm-hmm. that came after. I mean, not just through the person of Roy Cohn, but also uh, national attitudes mm-hmm. and and hysteria. Yeah. This led directly to the, the McCarthy witch hunts. Yeah. But what if we lived in a world where the, the Anti-Defamation League and the other uh, American uh, uh, Jewish advocacy groups stood up uh, behind the Rosenbergs instead of saying, actually, we're going to sit this one out because we're afraid of the uh, uh, conspiracy theory that communism is a Jewish plot. We've got enough of that heat right now. We're not going in on this one. Yeah. What if they'd taken the other tack, like international Jewish advocacy groups? Yeah, that's one of those things that you just, like, man, if you had a time machine and you could just, like, see mm-hmm. how things would have played out, it would be very interesting. That's a good idea for a novel, guys. Yeah, Someone yeah. go write that book, The What If, How America Would Have Been Different. Or even the logical argument that U.S. intelligence doctrine was wrong at this point. We should have been sharing these with an ally who were doing the brunt of the work against the, the Nazi army. Yeah. Or not even that they, they were wrong. Hey, they were an ally. This is not what this law says. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. <laughs> I, I need someone to go debate this. Right. Go write this up into a book. I want to read it. <laughs> yeah. The the alternate history of, of the Cold War. Yeah. it'd be That'd be such a good book. <laughs> Someone's going to tell me this book exists. Someone's going to write it next week and be like, oh, actually. And if you want to be one of those people... You can listen to us talk more about letters after this break. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Hello. It's time to read letters. Woo! So, we got a letter from Josh, who is... Writing in for the first time. Hi, Josh. Glad to have you. Josh uh, wants to tell us about some of his favorite PBS shows mm-hmm. uh, to go with our past episode. Uh, Square One, which was a show uh, from the late 1980s to about 1992. Uh, it was a TV show about math uh, that was produced by Children's Television Workshop. Uh, the first half was a series of short bits kind of Sesame Street style uh, with various math concepts and had a lot of uh, parodied 1980s cultural icons like versions of Pac-Man, and Hollywood Squares and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second half was called MathNet, a Dragnet parody uh, that had a lot of James Earl Jones in it. Sure, sure. Uh, and the detective, of course, solved mystery- mysteries using math. Uh, another show is called AM Weather, which... Josh, I love you for this. Uh, AM Weather was what you think it is. It was an AM weather show, the first thing that came on on the PBS channel at 6.45 in the morning. And gave you a 15-minute detailed look at the nation's weather. And it was Josh's favorite show. And I love it. What a special boy. Uh, Josh asked his parents to donate the pledge drive so he could get the official AM weather guide to meteorology things, symbols. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing at me? I love you very much. And then uh, Josh also mentions a show that I believe many of us would know Mm because it was very uh, widely shown, and that is... Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? That that was a little before me. Where I did a lot. I watched a lot more. Where in time is Carmen San Diego? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There are those differences. <laughs> I kind of just clumped them together, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this one ran from nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety five. It was a geographic. Okay, I, I was seven. Okay. Yeah, we, yeah, I'm sure you saw some of it. You I might... did. I said I saw some. It's not as much as I saw Where in Time. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, it was a, a quiz show for kids that focused on geography. Um, and Josh's favorite part of it was their in-studio music by the Rockapella, a group that did all the music cues acapella, mm. all the little theme songs and everything. As the name might imply. And Josh had the awesome experience of 10 years later seeing them perform live, <laughs> which was apparently amazing and inspired him to join an acapella group himself, which would eventually lead to many things happening and then him meeting his wife. Oh, So PBS brought them together. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Thanks, Josh, for writing in. I love it all. <laughs> Peter also wrote in. Uh, answering our spy question. Yeah, the prompt for this episode was I wanted to hear people's favorite spy. Now, Peter writes in about a spy that wasn't a spy for a country, but for a company. Robert Fortune was a Scotsman who stole the secret of tea from China. He was hired by the British East India Company uh, and went to China in disguise to with um, a newly invented portable glass house. Mm -hmm. and took tea and transported it from China to India. Remarkable thing about it was he didn't speak any Mandarin or any form of the Chinese language. Uh, and at this time, it was when China didn't have like a universal language. Lots of different areas spoke lots of different languages. And so each time he went to a new province, province, each mm -hmm. time he went to a new province, uh, he just pretended he was from somewhere else. <laughs> like, no, I don't know what you're saying because I'm from this other place. So this ended up breaking the Chinese monopoly on tea production. You know, China wasn't having such a great time at this point anyways, because this was uh, shortly after the uh, first opium war, where Britain forced China to accept, it, to accept opium as payment for tea. Welcome back to the show, First Opium War. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Final Gamer writes in again, and their favorite spy is Juan Pujol Garcia, a poultry farmer from Barcelona. Why did you say Barcelona like you were in The Princess Bride? The, the, the Barcelona accent has a lisp. People from Barcelona say Barcelona. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. That would be the most fascinating thing I've learned tonight. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, but there's a lisp in Barcelona, and I'm fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the wake of the Spanish Civil War, he, he uh, grew to despise fascism and decided to fight it at home and abroad. Uh, he offered his help to the UK and the US intelligence services, but they turned him down. So he decided to uh, get where the getting's good and contacted German Nazi intelligence uh, and lied about his uh, uh, intent and his identity. Uh, he presented himself as a Spanish government official and uh, fed the Nazis fake information through a network of 27 people that he made up by reading travel guides and newsreels. He, he invented his own intelligence network and sold lies to the Nazis. Oh, man. They sent him one of their Enigma machines encryption systems. So, which uh, allowed allies to crack the code. He also uh, diverted one third of, of the force that was supposed to defend Normandy, repel the D-Day invasion, uh, by claiming the allies would be landing at a different beach, which uh, MI5 then filled with inflatable tanks and fake planes uh, to, to help sell the ruse. He was one of the- I want to see these inflatable tanks. <laughs> Seriously, this this letter is like making my day. He was one of the first people to find out about the uh, Pearl Harbor attack months before it came and tried to contact the FBI, but uh, our good buddy Hoover uh, refused to see him because he did not trust the Hispanic people. So Garcia was unable to uh, spread the warning. I don't know how many people know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that J. Edgar Hoover was a big racist? I think a lot of people know that. I mean, the specific thing. Like, yeah. oh, we knew about Pearl Harbor, but we were too racist to listen. 
So, so due to the Nazis believing he was one of theirs and the Allies recognizing he wasn't, he's probably the only person to have won a, a, an MBE from the Queen and the Iron Cross from Germany during World War II. <laughs> Over the course of the war, Germany paid him $340,000 plus a pension to him and his network of 27 informants. <laughs> So it's good work if you can get it. Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, Sam wrote in about uh, answering the spy question as well, with starting with uh, favorite fictional spy, which is Michael Weston from uh, the TV show Burn Notice. Hooray, Burn Notice. Uh, apparently, uh, Michael there could uh, work miracles with cell phones in the age before the iPhone. Uh, and as for real life, Sam mentions Harry Houdini, who was hired by both Scotland Yard and the Secret, Ser Secret Service to sneak in and out of police stations all over Europe uh, to steal some secrets. <laughs> uh, also mentions Giacomo Casanova. That's my boy. Yeah. Longtime Chip Out Ironicast listeners will know. That's my boy. Yeah. You read a book. His book. His, yeah, you his read memoir. his book. I've seen the David Tennant movie. It gets the characterization right, I'd say. Yeah. It fudges history, but then it has to. Yeah. Uh, but Casanova was a spy for the Venetian government at uh, for a time. Not good at it. No. Uh, and this uh, Sam connects to when he mentioned Mozart's briefcase, a brief career in espionage before. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know this was around the same time. Uh, it's unknown if, you know, they ever crossed paths, but they did both live in Prague, so maybe. Maybe they were little spy buddies. And Sam also uh, goes back to our previous episode about the Guinness World Records. Mm -hmm. uh, wants to give Guinness props for getting rid of the sleep deprivation record. because <laughs> Oh, because that's literal torture. Yeah, it's really dangerous, and a lot of people like, mess themselves up permanently doing that uh so he's really glad like guinness was like no we're not gonna do no. this anymore you will no longer find the consecutive hours awake record officially published yeah so thank you sam thanks sam alex and faye write in with congratulations on a successful gextra life thanks thanks for tuning in and yeah. all that thanks to everybody for that this is the first episode we've recorded after the event yeah if you'll remember our, our fun timeline shenanigans uh whenever we mentioned it in our previous episode yeah i couldn't handle that that was too much <laughs> so now we know the things we said back then are right that it was a great time it was we, we were I, successful with all of your assistance yeah and I did support get, i did get sick but you know that's okay it's that's, for the children that was mostly unrelated we're not sure the germs came from josh or maybe I gave Josh or maybe the maybe they came from you to him. Or maybe I was having allergies there, and then I just got sick later. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But back to the letter. Uh, Faye's favorite air transport uh, for a previous prompt is the Concorde, that super famous, super fast okay. transatlantic jet. Uh, while Alex's are some aircraft that only technically get the name, like, say, hovercrafts Ooh. i mean they've they've got a crew and a flight deck and they are off the ground mostly they even live near the hovercraft museum and uh provided a few pictures along with this letter so thank you very much for those and for the favorite spy prompt alex's is uh audrey hepburn a top agent of the Dutch Resistance during the Second World War. Yeah. The Nazis took Holland when she was just 11, and uh, her, her time during the famine of 1944 uh, gave her the, the distinct waifish figure we know her for, because she never fully recovered from the starvation. Uh, she did secret performances to raise money for the resistance as a young dancer and would smuggle messages in her ballet slippers. Mm -hmm. Faye's favorite spies are the female agents of the Special Operations Executive, 
Uh, the SOE was also known as the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. <laughs> Or the Baker Street Irregulars. They were, they were a secret spy group that organized resistance acts and guerrilla warfare across all fronts. It included uh, Ian Fleming and Christopher Lee among its agents. Anytime you hear the uh, uh, anecdote about Christopher Lee on the set of The Hobbit uh, telling the fight director, no, here's how you stab someone from behind. This is how he knows. <laughs> But a number of their agents were women who were rejected by MI6 because they were women. One was Noor Anyat Khan, uh, who was descended from a, an Indian sultan and was a prominent figure. Her family fled France, which you should try saying for fun. <laughs> family uh, fled France. Good job. On the last boat from Bordeaux in 1940. And she joined uh, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force as a radio operator and performed that same job for the SOE. Who, uh, of course, they codenamed their operators pianists because ah. they're spies. The usual life expectancy for an SOE pianist was one to six weeks. Oh, God. On her first mission, it's uh, suspected that the contact... Uh, was a double agent and betrayed them, leading the other agents to capture. But Khan escaped and continued to send messages back for four months before eventually being captured herself by the Gestapo, again possibly betrayed by the family of a fellow agent for a bribe of 100,000 francs. Uh... For 11 months, she was imprisoned, interrogated, beaten, escaped, recaptured, and sent to Dachau, uh, and executed without giving up anything but the single word, Liberté. The memorial to her in London is the first erected to a Muslim woman. You can see a, a PBS film uh, made about her life, Enemy of the Reich, produced in 2014. I think I've heard of that. Thanks, Alex and Faye. And Kieran writes in with a very Kieran letter, because it starts with a correction. Uh, I did say offhand that the Hindenburg didn't kill anybody by landing on them. Not true. There was one member of the grounds crew who, who died and several injured uh, trying to help it land. And it's the most Kieran letter because it continues with an interesting story and a link to an article he wrote. Yeah. His you keep it up, Kieran. Keep up the good work. Uh, his favorite spy is Afra Ben. Uh, she spied for England in Holland in nineteen in sixteen sixty five. Yeah, you gotta make sure you're getting your numbers right there. The the records that are confirmed reflect she wasn't that great at it. But when she returned to England, she became the first ever English female author. Uh, her plays uh, Abdelazar and The Rover are still performed today. Again. Go check out Kieran's writing on Afra, including uh, that maybe she was still working on a spy all those later years, and in the end, was a much better spy than we give her credit for. Oh. Possible. Could be. It's the thing about spies. It's really hard to nail down definite facts. This is true. <laughs> So thank you, Kieran, and thank you to everybody who wrote in. If you would like to send us a letter, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And you can give us your corrections, question stories, uh, anything you might want to hear read on the air, including our regular prompts. So, dear, have you got one for the folks at home? So our prompt for next time yes. is, what play do you think everyone should read? Yeah, give us your must-read play. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be your favorite. It could be your favorite. could also be one that you don't really like, but you do think everyone should read. <laughs> that should be something really interesting to hear about. Mm-hmm. So thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, while you're out there uh, giving us an email, why don't you also give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever else you can. you can. It really helps so much. You can also tell a friend. Tell those friends. Word of mouth is a great thing. So use your mouth and tell a friend. <laughs> should, I shouldn't write slogans. Should the prompt for our next episode be favorite way to use your mouth? No, I don't want to know that. <laughs> we'll stick with play everyone should read. Okay. 
Something else you can tell people about, though. Yeah? It's Gextra Life. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, videos are being put up to YouTube any day now at time of recording. Mm-hmm. The first couple hours might be up already by the time you're listening to this. Maybe. Maybe. And our uh, donation page for Gextra Life is still open until the end of the year. Absolutely. So if you're like, what? This is the first time I'm hearing about this. I want to help support that. You still can. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a reminder, if you've already donated or you plan to donate and your employer offers uh, matching donations as part of, you know, a community service uh, uh, sort of thing, double your money. Yeah. Yeah. And all the money goes to help Hurley's Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. Yes. Uh, they they are so excited about this every year, and they're so thankful and grateful. And even if they weren't, it's, it's a wonderful mission to, to help these sick kids in Flint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can also keep in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. At History Honeys. I guess that's really all we have to say. Yeah. My name's Grant. Mine's Lena. And history's better with with your your honey. honey.